the mic up front. Let me turn this thing on. Okay, I'm on. Um, first off, what blanks did I miss, Lee? Yeah. Uh, the first one that I, I don't have is three blanks. Three blanks. Three blanks. Three blanks. Three B? No. no. K-N-O-W. Heart motive. Self-reliance is rooted in pride. They should rather boast in their humiliation, moral judgment. Do. Speak, know, and do. I mean, that's basically the flow of it would be speak this way, knowing this, and then... Yeah, you go. Yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, any other missing blanks? God is sovereign over his church. Well, if you want to think, it's, it's the big picture, little picture. Whether it's the rise and fall of nations, or whether it's, quote, quote Spurgeon, the creeping of an aphid over a leaf. Every snowflake in a blizzard, as much as the constellations in the sky above. And even some su surprising things, like... Let us press on to maturity as a church, and this we'll do if God permits. Like, no, it's weird, but get the, we need a microphone. Can someone pass the microphone around? Oh, no, no. We got a deacon. Deek on, man. Deacon of Mike. There you go. Well, it's like when we're praying and you know, I mean, don't we know that it's God's will for marriage to be restored? Yes. Well, then, that's, I mean, you okay, know no, what I mean? No, let me, let me pause here. Yeah, no, let me, let me try to unpack some of that. Um, you can come at this two ways, but biblically it's clear. Um, there are two ways that God can speak of his will. We read in Isaiah the, I declare the end from the beginning, I'll accomplish. There is one perspective on God's will where absolutely all of it happens. And that is sometimes you can refer to as his decreative will or his sovereign will or his kingly will or what. There are other things God declares he desires that don't always happen. Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem, how many times I'd gather you up, but you were unwilling. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but people perish. Um, so the Bible speaks in both those ways. We, we can speak of God's will of decree and God's will of desire and permission. Um, and so we know God's will of desire is for Ethan to repent. Um, and so we can, that when we're praying along his revealed will, we should pray with great boldness and great ardor and great fervent, fervidness, fervent, fervitiveness, fertivity, fervity, with great fervor. Thank you. Um, because in a way that God hasn't said, I desire for Jeremy to get a new car. He has said these things. I hate divorce as I live to clear the Lord in Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, um, and, okay, no more, I will stop, okay. Um, but God's will of desire does not always happen. Um, so, yes, but, but when we are praying according to his will, we should pray with great boldness. And it absolutely is his will of de desire that this would happen. 
Um, and in his secret counsels, he will do what he has determined what is good. And yet he tells us to come and petition and to repetition. He tells us to pray like a widow being persistent. I mean, don't let the doctrine of the sovereignty of God make you become a um, passive prayer. No, no, the temptation. In fact, who's got the, anyone got a copy of the Valley of Vision, the Puritan prayer book? One of those prayers airs into this. It's basically, you know what's best, so I'm going to leave it in your hands. That is not how God tells us to pray. He tells us to pray like we got a, someone trying to sue us and we're, we're helpless and we're a widow banging on a judge's door. That's what he tells us to pray. Um, so, okay, pray that way. Um, so, so accepting that God's control should increase our prayer, not decrease it. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's really, it's like every other sin. If God's will, none of us would sin. Yes. That's a desire. Yes. But we sin. We sin. Yes. Yes. And and part of how things all work out for good, I don't know, but we can look at, say, like Pharaoh, not letting Israel go, brings God tremendous glory in that, or even Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. I mean, one of one of the illustrations that um, Oz Guinness uses is of uh, the double agent. He, he envisions a scenario where you're living in um, occupied Poland after the Blitzkrieg, and there's an SS officer who pulls you aside and says, secretly, I'm smuggling people out of here, but you're going to see me do things. You're going to see me arresting people, and you're not going to see me letting them sneak out in the back. You just got to trust me. Well, God is sovereign over the world. He says, trust me, I'm good, and I know what I'm doing. And the few places we get to look behind the curtain and see what he's doing, by golly, he's good. And so the places where I don't get to see behind the curtain, I have to trust him. Um, and I think that's one of the helpful things with Scripture is you can look at, oh, he, he, uh, he sold Joseph into slavery. His brother, I mean, think about it. You get kidnapped. They're almost going to murder you. Instead, they sell you into slavery. Then you get falsely accused of attempted rape. And then you help millions of people not starve to death. Oh, God was up to something good there. You know? We look at Job, right? And so God says, I mean, what we read today in Romans 8, in the gift of his son, has not God proven his good intentions? So yeah, I don't fathom what's going on. I don't claim to know what he's doing. But I do know, I do know he's worth trusting, and he's proven himself trustworthy. Um, and, and when we struggle with that, he's given us his word to help strengthen us in our confidence. I mean, the, the, the challenge is continuing to trust and moving forward. Um, in fact, let me, let me show you an example of this exactly in practice. Go to Psalm 73 or 77. I forget which one it is. Hold on. They're both fantastic Psalms. It's one of the two. I'm going to read all. How did this flatten? Okay, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Here. No, no, no. I'm still learning how this thing works, man. Hold on. It's got two. You can have two. Wow. This thing's crazy. Okay. What the? Oh, there's two knobs to type. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. 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 Just gonna, I'm just going to... Give me a minute here. Hold on. Okay, so Psalm... Um, 77. That's what I want. 
or 73. Let's, we can look at both of them. Um, one of the things that's really helpful in the Psalms is it shows us how people of faith fight by faith to believe God. Um, 77 is remarkable. And it's lament. Some, some terrible thing has happened. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. Now jump ahead in this lament to verse 7, 8, and 9. 77, 77, 7, 8, and 9, where five questions get asked that you can read this and just think it's hyperbole, but just read it slowly and consider someone wrestling with these very questions. And they, and they basically, I think, are in light of what has happened, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Well, something has happened in the psalmist's life to make him wrestle with these questions. Are his promises at an end for all time? I thought you promised to do good. Doesn't look like you're doing good. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So what we know is something is happening in the life of the psalmist to make him question God's faithfulness, goodness, love, control, can I trust him? Do you mean me well? I know you've been compassionate and kind and faithful in the past. Are you still, right? I mean, so th these are real issues, people, can, which also means you can be filled with the Spirit and wrestling with these questions. What matters is you answer them and you respond to the way the psalmist does, because the psalmist does, the psalmist fights back, and the way the psalmist fights back is in verse 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder on your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So the psalmist confesses wrestling with these questions, and then the psalmist actively decides to go and meditate on God's saving works in the past. And what happens is an immediate change of attitude. I mean, it's, it's stark. If you think of this like a V, right? The downhill slope are those questions. And then the pivot is 11 and 12. And then look at 13, 14, and 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. How on earth do you go from, does God still keep his word, to that? Well, we get some insight into what particular work and wonder the psalmist began to meditate on in the next few verses. It's the Exodus. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So let me reverse engineer what goes on. The psalmist is up against the ropes, questioning God's faithfulness, questioning God's goodness, and recognizes the way they fight back, I need to remember what God has done. And so the psalmist spends some time, in this case, thinking about the Exodus and how God did hear his people's cry and he cared for them. And the cry went up to Yahweh and he heard and he knew and he saw and he raised up a leader and he sent him and he re would not relent and he destroyed the greatest nation's army in the world at that time and miraculously delivered his people and fed them in the wilderness. And as he's thinking through God's past faithfulness, what happens? Hope and praise and joy well up. Same thing. This is one of the reasons why reading Christian biographies is really helpful. I hear about God's 
faithfulness in the life of William Wilberforce, and I'm reminded of who God is. I hear about God's faithfulness in the light of Adonai, in the life of Adonijah Judson, and I am reminded of his faithfulness. This is why God's faithfulness in your own life. This is why we get so encouraged when we hear baptismal testimonies. We hear about how God saves someone and joy wells up within us. So it's a really practical demonstration of how you fight discouragement. Um, it, you sit down and, and dwell on one of God's wonders. Another place, look over at 73. Here's another way to fight discouragement. I mean, the Psalms are, are lessons in how to deal with our emotional life. They're, they're amazing. Um, you guys, we, we sing all the time um, the last few verses of this Psalm, right? Whom have I in heaven but you? But this is really a Psalm of envying the wicked, being frustrated the wicked are getting away with it. Ethan's getting away with it. Or is he, right? But it looks like he is. Looks like the wicked are prospering. It looks like evil men are flourishing. Looks like Stalin got away with it right? Looks that way. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's a summary of the Psalm. He's going to tell you about it, but the basic thing is, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the Psalm. God is good. And I almost stumbled because I was really envious of the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftiness. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in witches. And then his response to this, seeing this, is to think, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken. What use is it in being faithful to God when the wicked are blessed and we get stricken? These are real issues in life. These are real issues that people struggle with. You're looking at people seeming to prosper, seeming to be happy, and not only are the wicked prospering, but I'm trying to be faithful and I'm suffering. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And then he realizes that if he actually embraces that, the temptation in your heart is to embrace that, he knows he's gone too far. He says he almost stumbled. If I had said, I'll speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he knows, yeah, I'm right up against the edge. I was saying, well, heck with it. Heck with being faithful to God if this is what it gets me. Then I thought how to understand this. It seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. The Hebrew is literally afterward. And I wish the ESV had translated verse 17 and 24 with the same word, because they parallel. Um, in 24, you guide me through counsel, and afterward you receive me in glory. Same Hebrew word. The, the way to resolve the problem of evil in this world is considering the two different afterwards the two different ends. And that's how he synthesizes it. I didn't know how to make sense of this. Then he goes to God's temple. Presumably he gets help from God's people. And then he reinterprets it. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast to you. She's recognizing his, he was questioning the goodness of God, questioning whether being faithful. That was, I came right up the edge. I was acting like a beast, an animal. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. So then there's also a now difference. The wicked can't make these claims. You are continually with you. You're right. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, my afterwards, different from theirs, you will receive me in a glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your work. So in two Psalms, 73 and 74, we get explicit demonstrations of how to fight back from discouragement, from the temptation to abandon faithfulness to God because things aren't going well, because things are painful. In this one in particular, the contrast of the apparent success of the wicked. Yeah, God's modeled for us in the Psalms how to fight back by faith. That, that's the fight of faith. And you can wrestle with these things as long as you're fighting back like the psalmist is fighting back. Now, if you just let him wave, wash over you and you give up, well, yeah, the psalmist even tells you, I would, have, I would have betrayed the generation of the faithful. I would have been like a brute animal. But if you fight back by remembering, so part of it can be remembering God's path faithfulness. Part of it's just remembering the end, getting a long view of life. Don't just think about the next 30, 40 years. Think of the next 40,000 and fa factor that long view in. That's what's going on here. Okay, anyway, so that's a long answer to a question. In the back, Don Loops. Um, from Psalm 77, uh, it's interesting in, uh, verse three, he says, I remember God and was troubled. <laughs> yes. So it's not always, we can read that Psalm in what, two, three minutes. Yeah. And you know, it has a happy ending in, in real life. It's not always over in two or three minutes. You know, we're, we're struggling. It can be a very long season of life that. Right, we, we struggle with, with something. Yeah, this remembering may not reap hope and joy in the first two minutes of remembering. So this is what Christians sometimes heard as meditation, but really chewing on and, and, and thinking through. And this is where we can help each other. If, if I'm dealing with someone who's discouraged, someone who's depressed, you, you can lead them in this, not trying to be sneaky, but you can lead them. Hey, I, I forget, can you tell me again how you came to faith, how the Lord saved you? Get them talking and thinking about God's past faithfulness. Or tell them, can I, did I ever tell you about how God, you know, I love telling the story about how God saved my dad by first making him a quadriplegic. He had to humble him. No, he did. So there's one of the times you get to see behind the curtain. And I'm like, okay, sometimes a ski accident leaves you a quadriplegic's a good thing. Because my dad was one of the most, think of this psalm today. My dad was one of those hardworking, self-reliant people I know in all of the positive senses, but it still kept him from God. He was, my dad was a very, very, religious nominal Catholic, meaning his nominal form of Catholicism, he held to tenacity, right? Um, and at the end of the day, I would describe my dad as someone who had his faith in a church that had his faith in Jesus. That's, at the end of the day, the priest said, I'm good. Um, and my dad put himself through law school, through the GI Bill, and was a very successful attorney, worked his tail off, and he went skiing, got hit from behind by a young, out-of-control girl. He had ankylosing spondylitis. He had uh, 
arthritis in his neck, his C3 and C4 vertebrae shattered. And he walked around for a week with a broken neck because your neck muscles can hold your head up. Even God, God's gracious. I, I had a masseuse come and give him a massage. If they'd pushed in the wrong spot, he would, he'd be dead. He would have severed his spinal cord. Just, and then one day, couldn't get up out of bed. And then they took him to Dartmouth Hancock in upstate um, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. And uh, they went, uh-oh. They actually operated on his spine from both sides of his neck. <laughs> and he came out of a quadriplegic. And he lived that way for two years before he died. And in the last six months of his life, God first brought me to faith. And then, um, through a lot of Bible studies I had with him, my dad made a profession of faith, which only intensified as he drew near death. That's the short version to say, I'm thankful what God did what he had to do to humble my father. I'm, I'm thankful for that now. I can see God's means good. I would have had a very hard time seeing that in the first week of his injury. So not that I know what God's up to in other extreme difficult things, but I, if I think even just telling you that, I'm re-encouraged that God is trustworthy and worth trusting. So these, these are the ways we can help people who are discouraged, either leading them to tell you or telling them or reading a passage. Like, our hearts and the Holy Spirit in us responds when we hear of God's faithfulness. It's more than just, yeah, yeah, I know, I know all things work, but actually working, getting your mind in there, and, and like you're saying, continuing in there. Maybe it's the third Christian biography that does the trick, you know? But knowing this is what I need to do. I need to bolster my hope in the Lord, and the way I do that is the testimonies of his faithfulness. That's how I do it. This is, go, go to Romans um, 15. This is spelled out explicitly in Romans 15. I remember uh, Stuart Scott teaching this. Um, so the Psalms demonstrate the principle, but the uh, it's, it's stated clearly in Romans 15. Verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. How do you get hope? Endurance, what Dama's saying, persevering. And the encouragement of the scriptures, we have hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There's our third ingredient. Our end, we got perseverance, the encouragement of the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit yields Hope. Uh, another three uh, leg stool is uh, God's uh, wisdom, His goodness, and His sovereignty. If you if you go through it and say only two out of three are true, right? Um, you got you got problems. Yeah. <laughs> but if all three are true, yeah, then then we can have peace and joy and comfort and. Yeah. And, and confidence yeah. in God. You know, if, if God is is good, but He's incompetent, well, and He's in control, well, you know, so what? If He's if He's good, but He's uh, and He's wise, but He's not in control, well, so what? You know, if He's in control, but He's not good, right. <laughs> you know, if it again go go through those and and yeah. take only two out of three. Well, and, and the temptation to think. When bad things come in our life, God, if you love me, why did this happen? A friend of mine once said to me, this is Carl, 
Does the Father love the Son perfectly? Did it please the Father to crush the Son? Apparently love is a little more complicated than I like to think. Right? I mean, in other words, it's not as simple as love just means nice things now. The Father was pleased to crush the Son because he intended to glorify him and exalt him. And there's, we see the good purpose. I want the world to see that my Son is a Savior at heart. And so I will give him a context to do saving, and I will exalt him in the resurrection and ascension afterwards. But part of God's love for the Son involved crushing him. Okay, so love is not as simple as I as I like to sometimes think, right? So if God loved the son and crushed the son, it's no necessary sign of God's lack of love of me that some difficult thing is in my life. I, th- I think we have the misbelief that good and pleasant are the same thing. Right. If, right. if something is good, then it must be pleasant. If it's something pleasant, it must be good. Right. Well, that's, that's C.S. Lewis's we don't like to believe in Heavenly Father as much as a Heavenly Grandfather. Yeah. Somebody just gives the kids candy and hopes they have a nice time. Here's some candy. God is good beyond our desires. Here's some Werther's original. <laughs> Here's a butterscotch lifesaver. Here you go. Um, yes. Yes, indeed. Okay, other questions, thoughts, complaints? I mean, this is, this is, and part of the reason I stressed the Romans 8 thing this morning as I was going through this text, as, as Dom is saying, a three-legged stool, if you just focus on God's sovereignty and forget his goodness, you can be scared of this terrible awesome, and potentially, if you leave out his goodness, cold, heartless God. So you need to bring in and pair with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, his goodness, and his total commitment to his people. Baz, love the God is for you. Who can be against you? Well, Babylon can be against you. Nebuchadnezzar can be against you. The fiery furnace can be against you, right? Read the book of Revelation. All the gathered nations and armies of the world can be against you. A lot of people can be against you. As Paul goes through sword, nakedness, famine, disease, pestilence, they can be against you. But if God is for you, and if God is sovereign, do that math. So in the cross, this is Piper now I'm channeling. Um, In the cross of Christ, we have the absolute proof that God is 100% for his people. No, No greater proof could be given or is needed. And so we have to trust in that. Tim, microphone for Tim. In your perspective, what is the greatest story of an individual repenting in the Bible? Is it Job or is it somebody else? Let me give you, well, I'll give you my top list. Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter of the Bible. I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. What a trophy of grace. Nebuchadnezzar is the exact person. I, I, I didn't read the verse, but what Nebuchadnezzar says before he gets humbled is, behold Babylon that I've made with my hands. I mean, you want to talk about, you don't realize you're, why do you go eat some grass for a while, Nebuchadnezzar? Um, and just how about the sovereignty of God? No, he does that. He reserves his kingdom. Usually when the king goes mad, 8,000 people are ready to take his place. Seven years go by and his kingdom's still there and he regains his wits. And I mean, the amount of control on God's part to arrange that to happen. The apostle Paul, from persecutor and murderer of the brethren to writing most of the books of the New Testament. 
Um, the the uh, story of the prodigal son is, is an example, although he's fictitious. Other, other remarkable people coming to repentance. Peter. I'm reminded of uh, John Newton, uh, who said, when I reach the gates of heaven, I'll, there'll be three great, I think he used the word amazements. Um, one, that there'll be people there that are there that I never expected to see. And there'll also be people that I thought I'd see that I don't see. But the greatest surprise, the greatest amazement is that I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. 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 Okay. If you can think of other people in the Bible, I'm sure there are plenty of others. My brain's escaping me right now. But um, well, how's about Nineveh? How about that? I mean, you want to talk about the most truncated gospel message. What was it? What's his name? Kevin DeYoung. He was like, implied gospel. 40 days in Nineveh. I mean, all, all, you got an unwilling guy who doesn't want Nineveh to repent. His message is really simple. You have 30 days, and then it'll be overthrown. And from top to bottom, the entire people. I mean, just think. A Jewish prophet shows up. These are the people you kill, you enslave. These are the nothings and the nobodies, the weak and the powerless. A Jewish prophet shows up who clearly has no love for you. You guys got 30 days. Later. I'm going to go get a seat and some popcorn. And he just gets up on a hillside and he's waiting for his shock and awe. And the entire city, top to bottom, including the animals, repent. The animals are wearing sackcloth and ashes. I mean, they're not repenting, but the people are repenting for the animals. No, absolutely ridiculous to imagine that. And God did it. Made piles of skulls. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. These are some nasty folk. Nasty folk. And yet God saves them that generation of them at least, they don't stay with the Lord. The next generation goes back and eventually Alexander the Great comes out and takes care of them, which Zechariah predicts, but anyway. Um, but that generation of Ninevites repent, humble themselves. So yeah, there, there are some amazing trophies of grace in scripture. Um, amazing trophies of grace. Five, seven minutes, seven minutes. Any other questions, thoughts, complaints, haikus? Timothy. Deacon's work is never done. Deke on, my friend. Deke on. Okay, sorry, that's just cheesy, but hey. Just uh, to follow up, this gets into speculation, I suppose, but the just what you're talking about with Nineveh. So do we sort of assume that 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 was just like a line in the sand, miracle starts here, the repentance, you know, Jonah shows up, that's kind of the first, I mean, there's no way to really know this, but I mean, do we speculate that God is working through other things prior to that, and that's kind of the tipping point that sort of puts it over, or do we say, or do we suspect that it was zero repentance till Jonah shows up, and then it becomes from then on i tend to think it's the latter because of something jesus says it could be both ways if without what i'm going to point to in luke it could be both god could have been working through all sorts of external means but in luke in in the flow of luke's gospel jesus works a ton of miracles in the first eight nine ten chapters 
ton of miracles. Just like you get these like blanket statements. He healed all their sick. I mean, can you imagine how long that took? And eventually he, let me go turn, turn to Luke. Um, I think it's, let me look it up. Just Jonah and Luke. Um, Okay, Luke 11. Okay. And so, Luke 11. Um, yep, that's what I'm going for. Okay. Um, I'm in Luke 10. I'm looking at 10.29 going, what? Okay, 11.29. Okay, so Jesus has just gone up in the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke's gospel, that's a, that's a huge turning point. So if you want to think of it in this way, um, in the first eight chapters of Luke, well, really from chapter four to eight, Jesus, where they portray Jesus' early ministry, there's a very real sense in which Jesus is publicly displaying his messianic credentials. And that accounts for the huge frequency of miracles. The Messiah will do these things. It's what he tells them. I've come to heal the, the lame shall leap, the blind shall see, the dumb shall rejoice. And so the Messiah is doing these things. And he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Father publicly testifies to identity. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That last statement, making it clear, this is the prophet like Moses, whom I will send. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, in chapter 9, you get a massive turning point statement in the, um, in the gospel. And it's right here in uh, 51, 9.51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Repeats that exact phrase, 53. But because the people did not, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, the road to where? The road to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke's gospel, till you get to Jerusalem, is the travel narrative. So from a, we're getting somewhere. Hold on. So Jesus spends most of his time around Galilee, and he works a tremendous amount of miracles, town by town. Then he goes up on the mount, he's glorified, the father testifies to his identity, comes down, and now he's on mission. He's heading to Jerusalem. And one of the things that happens is Jesus begins to stop doing a ton of miracles. And he makes it clear, you've seen enough. There's a sense in which I have given you enough evidence, right? And um, the people just keep wanting to see more miracles. And Jesus begins to rebuke that. In John 6, this happens, right? He feeds the 5,000. What do they do? They follow him to the other side of the lake the very next day. And they're like, hey, teacher, what sign will you do that we believe in you? You guys were there yesterday, right? And then they're like, hint, hint, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. That bread thing was pretty cool. So here, behold, so, so Luke 10. This is Luke's version, I think, of announcing miracles are going to be scarce. 
Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring, I'm in 10, sorry, 11. Jump over to 11, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So in 11, we see Jesus make the point. So they begin to discuss, is Jesus doing what he's doing by the Holy Spirit or by Satan? At a certain point, Jesus' miracles have been so frequent and so undeniable, the crowd doesn't claim he isn't working miracles. They have to begin to say he's working them by the power of Satan. So the problem isn't Jesus hasn't done enough miraculous deeds to prove his case. The problem is wicked people who don't want to receive him will just start saying he's doing it by sin, which is part of the reason he's going to stop largely doing miracles. Um, he makes a statement in uh, 1120, right? Well, 19, 19 and 20. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Anyone know what the reference to the finger of God is? Maybe I got a, this is a direct quote of Exodus. Exodus 8. This is what Pharaoh's magicians say to him. Eventually, in their one-upsmanship, because they were able to match Moses for a bit, granted, they just turn a bucket of water into blood, not a river, but hey, it's something. And at a certain point, the magicians cry off saying, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh, this is of an order of magnitude and power we, we can't touch. The point being, even wicked pagan magicians recognize this is out of our league. And Jesus is claiming the same thing for his miracles, which then brings it to the... Uh, the, the sign of Jonah. Verse 29, when the crowd were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Now, I think early in Jesus' ministry, that's totally valid. Are you the Messiah? We expect the Messiah to work signs. But after he's proven who he is, they still want the show. The, you know, they want, they want, show us a trick. And he says, it seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man to this generation. Now, harmonizing Luke with Matthew, a lot of people think this is referring to the sign of Jonah being Jesus' burial and third day resurrection. In Matthew, Jesus makes that point explicitly. It is entirely possible, and I believe, Jesus used the sign of Jonah more than once. Going back to Luke, if you remember my presupposition, Luke intends to be understood by Theophilus without supplemental materials. In the context, I think the sign of Jonah is just preaching. If you think of the story of Jonah, no miracles were done, no great acts were done to convince the Ninevites. An unwilling preacher who didn't love the people he was sent to said, 30 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And in the simple act of that preaching, they repented. And Jesus, in the, in the flow of Luke, I think is saying, from now on, you're just gonna get my teaching. You're just gonna get my preaching. I think that's what he's saying. If I'm right, then no, I don't think there's a whole bunch of things lining up to bring Nineveh to repentance. It highlights Jesus' point if it was nothing but the prophet with his short, undeveloped message. I could be wrong, but I, think, I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. So that's, that's my reading of the sign of Jonah in Luke, in which would then mean Jesus used the sign of Jonah more than once and in more than one way. But I think if I simply take the flow of Luke, that makes the most sense of it. 
no, no, because he says, because uh, the Ninevites had no knowledge of him being swallowed by the fish. I mean, if you read the text, it literally is another chapter. And again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah is going to, so like there's the encounter of the fish that ends some amount of time, possibly years pass. Who knows? Again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, go to Nineveh. I mean, I've seen versions of this where the spit, fish spits him up on the shore of Nineveh. That, no, it's not in the text. So Jesus is referring to some way in which Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Well, what did the Ninevites see? Any signs and wonders? They saw a Jewish guy give a very short, brusque message of judgment. And then they repented. And Jesus says, that's all you're getting, I think. So anyway, time's up. God bless. I'll stick around for a few more minutes if you have any more questions. And uh, see you all next week. Yeah, because that one.